Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnett. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, Division of Forestry, and your hosts for today's show. Brad, I thought you said that we were going on a trip. We are, or, well, no, you are. Wait a minute. Just me? What's going on? So we're at your place, right? We're getting ready for this trip. But we are looking at a pine forest. Uh, Brad, uh, if you haven't looked, we're on my street in front of my house. I don't see any pines anywhere. We got some Norway maples. I got the big silver maples that get into my gutters over there. And lots of hackberries, of course, here in La Crosse. But I do not see any pine trees. You got to open your mind, Gregor. The world is not always as it seems. Now, here I can help. Take this blue pill and you can go on believing whatever you want to believe about silviculture. But if you take this red pill, I'll show you how far the Woods Road goes. The blue pill, the blue pill. No, I can tell you've been looking at those reruns of Matrix again. (laughs) Yeah, I love The Matrix. The Matrix is one of the best movies. (laughs) But anyways... It's really good. But seriously, uh, sometimes we look past things that permeate our world. Some things are everywhere, but we really give them little thought. In any town or any place where we live, uh, we're bound to see pine trees serving as utility poles. Ah. And, to, and, and I, if you're like me, uh, I have no idea how a tree becomes a utility pole or even what it takes to grow and tend utility poles in a lot of our stands. So today's guest, Jim Bauer, a resource manager with Stella Jones, is going to help us delve into the silviculture around utility poles. Well, that's good because that's something I've always wanted to learn more about. And so we're not going on a trip after all. So I'm going to start unpacking, unfortunately. So while Greg's doing that, let me remind you that today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by SAF, the Society of American Foresters. Since 1900, SAF has been the cornerstone of the forestry and natural resources profession. Its members are practitioners, researchers, teachers, advisors, administrators, and students who believe in advocacy, respect, science, honest communication, and professionalism. Join today and branch out and connect to this expansive network of professionals at eForester.org. Jim Bauer, welcome to Silvacast. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So now I have to admit, Jim, so I'm a forester, silviculturist, and I don't think I know anything about utility poles and utility pole management. And and I have to I have to believe there are a lot of other foresters and other people that are in my same boots. So maybe a, like a little bit of a, a primer, just, you know, what are utility poles? What are some of the specs that you work with on a regular basis thinking about utility poles? Well, it uh, is a good place to start. And it's, let's start off with, uh, you know, what do they do? They're holding up cables. They're, they're holding up power lines. They're holding up fiber optic. They're holding up transformers. Uh, all that stuff has weight to it. And so depending on how much weight each individual pole is holding, it, it can be vary by class and by size. So in class, we're talking about uh, class one, class two, class three, up through class five. And then the different lengths would be anywhere from 30 to 60 feet. So depending on what it has to hold up, it could be a class five 
with a 35. So a 535, uh, a 440, or a 345, they all have different purposes. And to break it down a little bit sooner than that, there's distribution and there's transmission. So the transmissions are generally gonna be very large uh, poles. We really don't get into too much transmission with red pine. You know, transmission starts at about 60, 65 footers and goes up from there. The brown sticks in front of your house, if, if you have them there, you know, those are 35s, 40s, 45s, and, you know, upwards of 50. Uh, so depending on what they do is what they need. If they hold up a lot of weight, they got to be a bigger diameter. Uh, and that's that's the basis of what what we start with, what we're looking yeah. for. Are those bigger poles, Jim? Are those come from the south then, the southern pine species? The bigger ones that we need the transmissions, we get Douglas fir from out west. And oh, Cedar okay. Out west. And is there somebody who makes up these specs or does each company have their own specs or is there some kind of national standard that sets these class one through five? Yeah, the National St- American National Standards Institute, the ANSI spec is what we use in America. Uh, we also ship to Canada. So there's a Canadian Standards Institute also. They're giving us specs. They're giving us specs on sweep and stuff like that. Each individual utility can also provide whole patterns and different specs like that. But the basics are the ANSI standards. And, and so you work here in, in Wisconsin and you're based in Cameron, Wisconsin, uh, but you work for Stella Jones. Um, so that's that's bigger than Cameron, correct? Yes, that's correct. Stella Jones is a publicly traded company and we also do lumber, we do uh, rail ties, and a few other things too. Uh, that's about, I believe, 2,600 employees between uh, the U.S. and Canada. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm always intrigued, and I think a lot of times in our past episodes, we've talked to people about how they got involved in forestry and, and things. And I know, talking to you, Jim, at a, a Society of American Foresters uh, state meeting a couple of years ago that that your path wasn't like directly into forestry when you, when you came in, when you you took like the, the non-traditional route, right? Yeah, I, I'm the very non-traditional route. My initial career out of high school, I, I was a carpenter and became a contractor. And uh, I did that for 25 years. Plus in about 2006, we ended up, my wife and I, we moved to Northern Wisconsin and looking for something to do. I continued to work down in the Fox Valley. That's where I'm originally from. Eventually, when the uh, 2008-2009 crash happened, it's time to find something else to do if you're in construction. (laughs) Uh, Those in construction already knew it was going down in 2006 and decided, you know what, Uh, this might be the time to go to college because I'm one of those that, uh, you know, took a year off before going to college out of high school. And well, that just spanned for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up starting at UW Fox Valley and Hey, I can, I can still learn and transfer to <laughs> Stephen Point and, and, uh, graduated in 2013, graduating older than many students' parents were. So, yep. <laughs> well, that's really cool though. I think, yeah. That, and, and I have to admit, I'm, I just have a, I have a soft spot for non-traditional students. Cause I think they're the ones who kind of know why they're there, you know, know why they're doing the things. And so I, I think it's really cool. And I think it's, it's really good for people to know that you can do this. You know, it's not like, like uh, we can see lots of people could come into forestry at lots of different points in their lives. Yes. When I, when I was there, there was a, a number of veterans that were 
there. Uh, I believe the number was 1,400 non-traditional students in the, you know, 2010, 2012 era that I was there. Yep. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a dedication that uh, traditional students lack. Yeah. And not all. There's, there's you know, very high quality traditional students in there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. it, it was a great Great experience. I, I, I'm glad I waited into my 40s to go to college rather than uh, right at 18. But. Yep. Brad, we didn't lack any focus when we were traditional <laughs> students, right? <laughs> I, I, it's a question whether we had focus, Greg. That was the, <laughs> what I don't think we had any to lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Other focuses. Yeah. So now you, you, you graduated, you're working with Stella Jones. And so it kind of comes into the silviculture that we think about. So knowing that utility poles are really an interesting market and kind of a critical market for, for quality and for value, um, you get to see that silviculture side when you're buying or marking or other parts. And so we'd kind of like to pick your brain on that. And so, so just for background, you're working mostly here in Wisconsin with red pine, correct? Yes, that's correct. And initially right out of college, I, I worked for a sawmill for, for three years before I came to Stella Jones. Yeah. Are there other species here? Like, do we, is there anything done with white pine or I assume we don't get anything out of jack pine here in Wisconsin? No, we're strictly red pine. Uh, and that has to do, I believe, with the cell structure of the, of the uh, other species, they, how they treat well, with the treatment process. But we strictly do red pine. So I'm kind of in the same boat as Brad. I've been managing red pine stands and doing thinnings, but I really lack knowledge about specifics in utility poles. So I'm really interested to get information from you about as a forester, what should I be looking for? So if I'm looking at a, at a red pine stand and I'm trying to assess whether it has uh, utility pole potential, what kinds of things am I looking for in that? And so maybe that gets Jim, back to some of the specs, but is there also maybe some things like density? Am I looking for a certain basal area of trees that meet these specs? How can I assess a stand to see if it has potential? Uh, I think you're probably, wit- at what point does your stand, uh, you know, probably by the third thinning, you're going to be able to see uh, some straightness or you're going to see a lot of defect uh, you're going to be able to make a call at about that point. So a, a better stand is going to be, you know, 110, 120 after it's been thinned. Uh, so you're probably looking in the 150, 160 range for decent utility poles. So you're really not assessing too much in the first and second thinning of those stands. You're, you really can't tell until those later thinnings. I haven't done any of the, when I worked for the sawmill, we would mark in first and second thinnings but you're not going to get utility poles out of them. I'm not at that uh, stage where I'm looking at that, that uh, age class. Is there a minimum diameter then that you're looking at too for the utility poles? Yeah, I like to see at least uh, 11.5, but more likely I want to be up in the 12.5 or 13 range is where we're yeah. going to you know, start to make, make sense. And, and so then, and, and they can probably outgrow it. So is there a upper limit then too, where you say, well, can't do anything beyond this point? There is, uh, but it depends on your matching the diameter to the, what kind of length I'm going to get out of there again. Okay. Uh, you know, the uh, 20 inch diameter, 35 is not going to make me, you know, it's not going to work. Uh, right. 
20, 20 inch diameter 55 is going to be a nice pull for me. So there is an upper limit. Uh, it's going to be in the 18 to 21 range, depending on what I have for height. I kind of have to get this lingo down in my head in terms of <laughs> diameter and height and class, like all of those things, but yeah. I'm, I'm catching on. So, so, yeah. so Jim, you get to see, so you kind of have this advantage too, right? Like you go out to the stands and you see the things that foresters mark, or you can see past management. So you get to see a lot of maybe like past sins, current sins and things that probably impact these stands. Are there mistakes that you see foresters making when they're out marking or working in red pine stands that you think maybe, you know, like you think, oh, they could have really had some really good stuff here and now they don't or, or something along that line? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I see is probably thinning a little bit too hard. What I've noticed is that to not go completely to the B line on every thinning. Uh, maybe 10, 20% over the B lines seems to give us a better pull quality uh, at the next thinning. When we're a little bit too open, the branches don't drop off naturally. They don't self prune as well. That creates, uh, you know, one of the defects is, is too many knots in a one foot section. So we'd prefer to see a little bit higher density. Does that also impact the, the taper? Because don't you want trees that have less of a taper to them? Yes, that's correct. Also, uh, each each class pole has a specific diameter at uh, six foot, and then a specific tip diameter. Okay. We've gotten some sales where, when I've been on the grading deck after seeing them peeled, I know that that butt diameter is for a class three forty. You know, a class three pole. It's mm -hmm. got the diameter for it, but it's marked as a 540. I have to go find out why. And the, the grader says, well, check the tip. You've got so much uh, uh, taper on that, that it has to be graded off of what the size on the tip is, not on the butt. I'm interested, Jim, too, just thinking about Brad's question of how foresters might be able to manage these stands prior to you coming in with this third thinning. Do you see any mistakes like, setting up a stand even at the first thinning in terms of access? Uh, is there a way that you see would be better um, managing that for poles or does it really matter, not matter by the time you get to that third thinning? Well, what I'd like to see is you've got to, ref the loggers need to be able to think about uh, how they're going to get uh, long poles out of a stand. And in forestry, we kind of should be thinking about that too seeing a logger try and cut a pole and skid it down a hill is, you know, if it's not a clear cut is kind of an entertaining thing. They also tend to bang into every other tree that's left if you don't have a careful logger. So as foresters, you know, the early, the early thinnings, if we can look to see what's going to happen in the future, how is that pole going to get out of there? Uh, where is it going to need to get to? That's going to, mm -hmm. that's going to be an advantage in the end when, uh, a pole company comes there for a harvest. So thinking about those access lanes and how you set them up long-term probably has a big impact. And that's kind of interesting. And it sort of gets to maybe some creative thinking on Forrester's part, because what you said earlier, you want to keep a little higher density to get that better quality and less taper. But then you also want to think about how you have good access and can move those poles out of the stand. So that's an interesting uh, kind of conundrum to think about. Yeah. And, and I would 
think Jim too. So if we, if we keep those stands above the B line slightly that we might be coming back into them maybe slightly more frequently than we would if we were taking them all the way down to the B line. Right. You may, you may be back in frequently. Uh, again, it's dependent on what kind of growth you're getting out of there. If we have 10 years of drought, right. It didn't put, it didn't put on a lot of, lot of beef there just because the, the MFL plan says we have to cut it at 10 years. We do need to make some judgments in there and it might not be the best time. Let's, let's let it go for another three to five years. For the, and you mentioned something about sites earlier and it kind of jogged my mind. So are there, are there certain types of sites that like a uh, red pine on like thinking about like Plainfield sands or something where it's like stuff like that. Do you really see, you only see the lowest quality poles coming out of those sites? I mean, not lowest quality, but maybe the smaller poles coming out of something like that. Or do you, do you see site really play a role in, in, in part of this as well? My, my feeling is the site is very, very critical to it. Yeah. Uh, we get some of the straightest, nicest stuff out of sand. I've noticed if we've got standing water in the area, we're not, it's usually pretty bent. We can get size out of it, but we can't seem to get straightness. But that's, that's an ongoing puzzle to figure out exactly what site is going to grow the best. And even in, in, in one stand itself, uh, there's a number of examples I've seen, you know, it may be only 30 acres and the pole, the stand up to the front is absolutely beautiful. And I want to make sure and walk the entire thing because when I get to the back, it's, you know, barely pulp. Now, why there's such a difference within a hundred yards is fascinating, but uh, I, I don't have an answer on that one. Well, this is an interesting situation, uh, Greg, because this would be a place where we get a higher quality product out of maybe a slightly poorer site for like say a site index or a habitat type or something like that. If the sands were good compared to maybe some of those wetter or more nutrient rich sites. Well, it's also interesting to hear you say that, Jim, just about variation you see within a stand itself. So parts of the stand may produce good utility poles and other parts not. And so um, I know it just gets back to something Brad and I talk about the importance of stand assessment and really thinking about your management and having good data on that stand in order to manage it. So that's interesting for me to think about. I was just thinking back to, and I'm really interested in thinking about when we develop these stands, uh, not only the early management, how can foresters help move that towards poles, um, but even at the earlier stages of planting, like, is there a, are there densities of planting that you see that tend to produce better poles than other densities or doesn't that matter as much? Uh, I think that's a, uh, another component that's worth addressing. Typically, I'd like to see a, a seven by seven grid or maybe a six by eight grid. Uh, beyond that, I think you're starting to get a little bit too open, uh, and it's going to depend on now how how you thin it uh, from there on out. But I, I would like to see somewhere around 49, 48 square feet per tree uh, starting out. When that puts you at about 800, I believe, <laughs> 800 trees per acre. And then those wider, wider spacings, I imagine you just see more branchiness and more taper on those sites. Yeah, more, more branching. They're not, they're not naturally pruning uh, and there's more taper. And really, when you're going into thin them, you have, you have less to choose from then too. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I, I'm always curious. Um, there are many times that we get to talk about pruning. Uh, have you worked with landowners or have you seen people that have done pruning and does that seem to make a difference with pole production? 
Uh, I haven't worked with landowners that do that, but uh, I think it probably doesn't do if if the stand is being managed properly, it should be shedding the the bottom twenty to thirty feet of branches already anyway. And I don't know that pruning is going to do a lot for it. But if we get the landowner out in the woods working on his woods, it connects him to the woods, and that's a good thing. That reminds me, we our, our guest a while ago, Tom Hill. Uh, I remember him telling me one time that some landowners like to golf, some landowners like to prune. It's like they just like to be in the woods doing those things. And so you just say, yep, and do what, do what makes you happy. Yep. And a happy landowner and somebody connected to the land is something that's good. And thinking, you know, thinking about that, maybe the far end of what we do. So we've talked about the planting. We've talked about the thinning. When we set up these harvests, you mentioned the, the, how, we, how we set up, uh, like being able to get trees out of the stands. When we're advertising these sales or thinking about this and, and sending people a prospectus, are there things that we should really be pointing out on there as well? Like things that are critical for you, like saying, oh, this might be a site that would have poles versus other sites. Uh, when I go through a prospectus, one of the things I'm looking for is what uh, thinning it is. Uh, I'll look at something that's a third or fourth thinning. If I read on there, it's a row thinning. It's obviously a first and it's not going to have anything for me. Uh, I also look for diameter. I, I would really appreciate anybody that puts the diameter on there. Average diameter of 14 is going to be something I look at. Uh, maybe it's a third thinning with an average of seven inches because of, you know, past management mistakes or something. Uh, that's probably not going to be something I'm interested in. If I'm in the area, I love to walk through them just to see what's happening. Yeah, it's fascinating so, on the diameter. Do you often sign, do you, do you see sites um, that have the utility pole? And, and thinking about that uh, on the prospectus, I think a lot of times we work with sites that, have, um, that haven't had maybe like the timely interventions or coming in on a regular basis. Does that seem to affect uh, your thing as well? So like, so it's thinking about a third thinning, but those first two might've been great. That third might've been really delayed. Does that come into play at all? I think where it comes into play is you're going to see a smaller diameter on that. Uh, and yeah. what my, my concern is that if we come in and, and do that harvest, what what's left out there, is that going to blow over? Uh, and it's going to reflect poorly on us and yeah. the planning and, and everything in the execution of the job. So thinking about those later thinnings then, so if we're entering a third and fourth thinning gym and there's utility poles within that stand, how should foresters be thinking about marking that? Typically, they probably would mark that as a thinning from below. So they take out the small stuff for pulp wood. And then they would be trying to identify the best trees and doing some crown thinning around those. And I know on your side of it, you would like to utilize utility poles within that. Do you just sort of take what you get through our just normal thinning practices or are there thinning techniques of maybe utilizing some of the poles, but keeping the quality and the stocking of the stand moving forward? still good typically what i would be looking at is on a third thinning if there's diameter in there uh, typically a third thinning what i'm thinking of a county sale is going to have been marked by a county forester and they mm -hmm. would mark it for uh the the standard order of removal you know crown difficulties forks defect things like that uh they will hit some poles some smaller diameter poles 
and we would select off of what has already been marked. Not a big fan of uh, taking smaller ones intentionally just to take anything out on the third thinning. The fourth thinning, because we're looking for 40 footers and up, uh, so I really need diameter out of it. And that's why I would hesitate to take anything unless it's already been marked uh, by standard order of removal. And Greg, you mentioned that thinning from below. Um, Jim, do you see uh, a preference or, or an experience that you've had where foresters, I think traditionally we might move from below, right? Take out the trees that are smaller, but, but in red pine, I know a lot of the guidance talks about thinning from above. Um, and trying to work with that. Have you worked with that very much? We haven't worked with it a tremendous amount. I think it's going to really depend on each individual stand. If you're going to take something, you know, take the, take the larger poles out of there or larger trees out of there, what's the chances that the smaller ones are actually going to grow out? You know, do, does it have the crown to support the nutrients needed to uh, put the extra wood on? Uh, if you're looking at a for thinning at 55 years old, but this tree is only nine and a half inches diameter. It, 55 years old, nine and a half, it's not going to put enough on to do anything. That's the one that's got to come out, even though you may have a nice 40 footer right next to it. I think that's really what you said there is really important is for foresters to be looking at that crown health and vigor and helping that make those decisions about will that tree respond to thinning um, and develop, or really is it something that has lost so much crown that it's not going to grow much more and, and then that should come out. So just that important, I just think about that importance of looking up and assessing the crown health and trying to tease out those decisions. Right. And, and another thing, if you keep looking up at the crown, you may find you're in a pocket decline and uh, that whole area need, may need to come out. I was just thinking, kind of thinking out loud to myself. And so thinking about those third and fourth thinnings and what I'm hearing you saying is you, you kind of work with that sort of standard order of removal or standard types of thinnings that foresters do and kind of take the poles that come out of that. Um, but you're also in that thinning thinking about sort of crown health and uh, what trees you could develop further into larger size classes that have enough vigor to grow. And so that all makes sense to me. Uh, and then I know at least in Wisconsin, on the, especially I would say in the Southern two thirds of the state, uh, some of our plantations really start to decline quite a bit once we're, we're seeing 60 years, 70 years of age. So, so there I know foresters are working with maybe um, reestablishing those plantations. And so that obviously would be a time I would think where you would be utilizing a lot of poles off of those sites. Do you see that happening in some of those sites where the, the plantations are just losing vigor and the foresters are really looking at regenerating them? Yeah, it's, it is, as you move further south, as you said, in the state, uh, they seem to top out much quicker than what they do up in the northern part where mm -hmm. I'm pretty much concentrated. So, yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they are going to remove some. But you, you also bring up a point. Uh, by the time you're getting to the fourth thinning, you, the, 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 as a land manager, you really need to think about what's going to happen there from now on. Uh, because maybe if your understory is all hardwood and that's what the landowner wants, 
and how are you going to bring about that next forest uh, or is it is the landowner planning on you know final harvest uh, and spray it and plant it and bring it back to pine uh, by the time you're into the fourth thinning there may be reasons why uh, and, and for instance I'm thinking of a, a sale we're cutting right now that it should the management plan was for thinning but the landowner is going to come back to hardwood and, and the hardwood forest is there already. Uh, and rather than smashing the hardwood and then coming back in 10 years and taking the top off, we just said it's, it's time for the whole thing to go. And yeah. they agreed and it's actually turning out pretty well that way. But again, that decision was made, I wouldn't want to say not economically, just it's made because of what the landowner's desire was and what the future plan is. And I suppose in your experience with Stella Jones, so you work with so other parts of the company work, like you said, in, in the Western United States and the Southeastern United States, and their plantation forestry is, is really about, you know, cut and replant because they can grow those crops fairly quickly. It seems like here it's that maybe like what you were saying, a little bit of a difference in that our plantings were kind of putting trees back on these sites. And then we kind of have to make a determination at the end of these rotations, like, oh, maybe I can go to other, you know, hardwoods aren't a bad thing here. Yes. Yeah, I work primarily in the, the counties in the northern part of the state here, and the, the counties do, you know, very well in their planning and what's what's going to happen here in the future. We certainly see a lot of stands, maybe more on private lands where the landowners, just like you said, Jim, are making a decision to go to a different uh, forest type, might be hardwoods, it might be white pine uh, that's growing in in the understory of these and I know we're planting less red pine uh, than we're harvesting. So is there a concern just at, at the larger level of that resource um, declining? Yeah, I would say there is some concern, but we also have the federal forests and we do have the, the county forests that are uh, replanting. The feds I have not seen so much, but uh, the counties in, in in areas where I have done the final harvest that's three years later and I happen to be going down a dirt road and think I'll take a right over there and see what this is like and and it's it's just kind of neat to go in there and see it's plowed and it's planted already and they're they're thinking of the future. I think thinking of the future is probably a a great way to end this because that's what we're you know kind of every time we go into a stand we should be thinking about the future and and I think you've given us some really good information, given us information for foresters, but also maybe just for our personal understanding of these markets and utility poles and how it, how our civil culture can influence it. Yeah, I, I think of a story of when I was a contractor and this, this was somebody else that had told me about it and how back in the, you know, 400 years ago when the cathedrals were built, the people that actually designed them and started and laid the foundation were not going to be alive when they were finished. And I think about walking in some of these stands where it's the final harvest and I'm the beneficiary of good decisions that were made by people that are probably not even here anymore. And I guess what I'm looking at is, is if every forester can think like that, you know, is somebody in the future going to be glad that I made this decision? We talk about that a lot, actually, on how foresters are tied to the different generations of foresters. So what we do today, some foresters living with 
uh, in the future, <laughs> you know, yep. and whether those are good decisions and we're thanking them or maybe they were poor decisions, <laughs> but we're all tied together in this long-term line. Right. And, you know, I'm, there's been stands where I'm, I'm marking poles and there's hardly anything in there. And I'm just wondering, what were you thinking? Whoever did this last time, you know, <laughs> and there's other ones where I'm walking through just going, thank God, somebody actually thought of how this is going to turn out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. somebody, somebody had some thought going into what they did here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like why they did it. Like those stands you walk in and go, Oh, this person did a good job. Yeah. It looks yep. Yep. And, and to keep in mind that uh, we're going to be judged in the future for, you know, how, how our forestry went in the woods. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great uh, lesson to, to end on. And really, I echo what Brad said, Jim, thanks for coming and just kind of talking to us about this issue that I always want to know more about, and I just never have really delved into. Well, appreciate the time. Uh, enjoyed talking with you and, and uh yeah, it was a good time. Yep. And I'll see you guys at SAF and wherever else we, we have <laughs> run into each other. That's right. That's okay. right. Okay. Yep. Sounds Thanks, great. Jim. Okay. See you, Jim. Thank you. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, etc., and share them with our listeners. Brad, unfortunately, the Dropbox is empty today. However, we have started to hear from some of our listeners just letting us know that they like the podcast, which is a good thing, I guess. Yeah, it is. Use the Dropbox if you're a listener listening to us and let us know that you love this show and we'll put you in the mix for our year-end drawing. We have a year-end drawing? Well, we'll put one together, right? Now, didn't I hear you say that you wanted to donate a young, semi-trained Britney pup? Um, potentially, Watson, you want to go to a nice home? Yeah. I think Michelle would say, hey, put him in. <laughs> in any event, we're going to work on one. Well, our Silvacast shout out this month is to one of those listeners, Jessica in Iowa. Jessica, a longtime listener. Wait, we have longtime listeners. This is only, I think, our second season. Yeah, that's right. People haven't gotten gray hair yet listening to our show. But they're listening. So another listener that we've uh, heard from that's also listening is Nathaniel here in Wisconsin. So you two are in our year-end drawing. Anyone else? <laughs> we'll figure out what we're going to give away, right? We'll figure that out. Okay, yeah. Nathaniel, Jessica, we have no year-end drawing yet and no plan on how to distribute that. But it's going to be big. We'll work on it. It's going to be big. Well, another podcast in the books. There's a lot to be said about this podcast, Brad. You can't say it without an explicit rating, though. The Booth! In any event, take care, everybody. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Frader, our editor-in-chief, Noel LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, a big thank you to UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.